Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Chapter 10, Room for Growth. Hey everyone, I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzka Hall. This is Climbing Gold. So today on chapter 10, we are going to take a quick look back at our first season. What does it all mean? Um, What can we learn from climbing's distant and recent history? And we talk about our next season, which looks forward into the next chapter of our sport. If you're joining us right now, none of this is going to make any sense. So if you haven't listened to season one, I highly suggest starting at the beginning. It'll make a lot more sense. Um, Alex, should we go ahead and jump in? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Number one, the pendulum will always swing between athleticism and adventure. So much of, of climbing history, things like bolting wars and, and, you know, traditional ethics versus sport climbing and all those kinds of things can really be seen in the lens of, of athleticism versus adventure. You know, people who think that climbing is at its heart purely adventurous or people who want to see climbing as more of an athletic activity. 60 years ago, climbing was pretty much all adventure with a pretty low degree of athleticism. And nowadays to climb at the most elite levels, you know, it's incredibly athletic, but then that athleticism can be used to go on, you know, potentially even crazier adventures. Yeah. The rise of gym climbing is also a perfect example of climbing sliding further along the athleticism spectrum because climbing in the gym is is very much a distillation of of the athletic side of climbing you know there's very little adventure in a gym but it can be incredibly athletic and i immediately kind of thought of of the dawn wall with like tommy uh you know putting in so much effort and that was such a big deal for the american climbing and and i think the global climbing world like people paid attention to that and then it was like so funny to kind of see adam andra whoever's like yeah well it's just adam andra you know he's the guy like you know does short sport routes and like freaks out and yells a lot and then he basically just like shows up and does the thing even though he hasn't even spent that much time in the valley and like it seemed like adam andra had been on the athleticism train but that that athleticism train actually allowed him to go you know, yeah, step up to, to what we, yeah, what we would consider to be like one of the ultimates of that sort of traditional or that sort of adventure style climbing. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, that's a great example because when you think of Adam Andre on the Don wall, you know, I mean, he climbs three or four grades harder than Tommy. And so obviously the Don wall is just so much more comfortable for him. You know I mean? Even though it's still an incredibly hard route, it, you know, one of the hardest big walls in the world. You know, I mean, Adam Andre comfortably climbs a full number grade harder than that. So, you know, for him, it's just like a good adventure. You know, he's like, oh, it's a fun trip to the valley. Spend a month, do this cool route, and then go back to uh, training for World Cups. You know, you're like, that's so wild. But I mean, it just goes to show that standards are, are constantly rising. You know, we have seen that pendulum swing through the decades. Like, do you ever worry that this time around it won't swing back to that style that, you know, you're, you're really well known for? I'm not too worried that climbing is going to swing fully to the athletic side of the spectrum and sort of leave adventure behind, because I think that there will always be a tension between the two. And and I think that anytime it swings too far one way or the other, there will always be some sort of countercultural climbers that, that decide to pursue the other end of the spectrum. I mean, it seems like right now, recently climbing is getting more athletic and less adventurous. 
you know, it seems like climbers are slightly more risk averse, you know, and, and that makes sense because most climbers learn how to climb in a gym now where, you know, by definition, there's no danger. But I think that that just creates this incredible opportunity for climbers who want the adventurous side of it. Uh, you know, I mean, and I, I kind of had that experience cause I grew up climbing in a gym. It was all very safe, but I wanted more of an adventure from it. And so I sought that out in, in the form of, you know, some of the soloing that I've done. And, and I mean, honestly, a lot of the climbing that I do, I mean, even today, you know, I went and sold this, wait, I didn't solo. I went and simul climbed this multi-pitch, uh, you know, on this big limestone wall. I'm kind of like, Oh, I wanted to have an active rest day. have a little adventure. And so I went out and had the adventure that I wanted. I mean, the thing is, is that that's always available to any climber. And so it's hard to imagine that climbing will ever become too safe because really anybody who, who wants to can seek out the experience that they want, that, that they want. Yeah. I don't know. And do you think, and and you think that there's something that's just natively like resonant about stepping up to risk? Like, right. I, I mean, I, I personally do, but I, I'm, I'm a dad. I, I coach like my kid through like looking at that as being like, should you be scared right now? Or should you not be like, I try to help teach him that just because sometimes the other day, like I found my kid, like 15, you know, my five-year-old 15 feet up a tree, like on a sagging limb. And I was like, dude, that's a little high. You should be a little scared. And he's like, no, I'm good. And then the next day he, the limb snapped and he like whipped 15 feet onto his back and was like freaked out you know like it was like well you should have listened to dad maybe but like i didn't was he uh he was uninjured he was he was uninjured he had like a pretty good like goose like egg on one bone i kind of thought i was a little worried it broke like fractured a bone for a second like he definitely had like he doesn't cry a lot and he had to cry a little bit that night but you know yeah he made it was okay but it definitely I, was I, like i thought i broke oh, my clavicle once God. falling out of a tree like that oh yeah but it's just a classic thing where it's like I, I do. I mean, I personally think that 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 is like a dance in life, and we take creative risks, we take physical risks, we take risks in business, we take risks in love. Um, you know, I think that's just part of it. But I'm curious, like, do you just think that 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 level of kind of being like, I clearly have skin in the game, that there's something that will always be compelling? You're saying, do I think that that's an integral part of climbing? That the risk has to be part of climbing. Yeah, like on a level to make it deeply like interesting. Do you think it has to be a part of it? I actually, I mean, maybe counterintuitively, I don't really think that risk has to be a part of climbing. I mean, obviously, I've enjoyed that aspect of climbing very much, but I don't really think that everybody needs it. You know, I mean, I think that plenty of climbers can be totally fulfilled as climbers just climbing in the gym or, uh, you know, I mean, you could be an elite World Cup competitor and basically take no risk in your climbing and yet still have your entire lifestyle revolve around training and competing and, and performing at an elite level as a climber. You know, I would never say that they aren't climbing. You know, it's like basically I don't think that risk has to be in climbing. I just think that it's kind of like a spice that that sometimes makes the stew a little more exciting. I don't know. It's like if, if you want it, add more spice. But but if you don't, I mean, you don't need it. Some people like their food bland. Because they're fucking light duty. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, true pioneers don't move climbing forward. They move it sideways. Have your thoughts evolved at all, whether this is like a sport or a creative pursuit? 
I mean, I think my personal opinion is that right now where we stand in climbing is that it's mostly a sport in which somebody can still express themselves creatively if they want to. You know, but I think that climbing has definitely swung pretty far towards the athletic side right now. And that's fine because there's still plenty of room for people to express themselves artistically or, you know, creatively if they want to. But I think it's steadily on its way to becoming a sport. Talking to some of the people that through their talent or through their vision have really moved the sport forward or like helped the sport grow, like Gil or Chris Sharma or you know, even Lynn Hill, is it, it seems that, that it actually that they play with both, that they actually connect those two things where they're like, I understand there's like this athletic component to it that needs to be refined and honed and trained and like developed, but then there needs to be some other layer where it's like, I'm bored with how people are doing it and I'm going to move it up. And I'm curious, like whether you think that's almost like the definition of a climbing legend is somebody that, that, you know, activates on that sort of athletic level, but then sort of says like this whole thing, like they don't end up happy with it and they just move it forward and, and push it in a new way. Not even necessarily move it forward, but push it sideways. You know, they just do something different. That's a really good way of thinking of it. Like the side, it's like less always forward and sometimes just sideways. Yeah, because often it doesn't feel like they're going forward because they're doing something different than their peers. So it feels like they're taking a step in a slightly different direction. You know, they're they're taking a hard left for some reason, but then it turns out that that's visionary. I mean, if you think of John Gill and bouldering, you know, I mean, it's hard to say that he, certainly at the time, I'm sure it did not seem like he was pushing the sport forward, you know, because everybody else is focused on climbing big mountains and he's climbing these tiny little boulders at the base of the mountains. You know, I'm sure to his contemporaries, we were like, that guy is doing the wrong thing right now. Like he is wasting his talent. But now looking back on it from from 60 years out, we're like, wow, he was very much ahead of his time. And, you know, now he's considered a visionary. Yeah. I mean, you think that happened to like Chris Sharma too. Like when he kind of went down the bouldering rabbit hole and everyone's like, what's Chris Sharma doing? You know, well, or like even the, more so with the deep water soling rabbit hole. Yeah, totally. And you're like, why is he playing in the ocean so much? That's weird. But then, uh, but then he made it cool, and everyone's like, "Wow!" You know, now they're deep water soloing competitions and things, and you're like, "That's that's pretty cool." I, I think I think one of the challenges with with climbing gold though is that you know, sort of by definition, in a forty minute podcast, it's just hard to add the context for all those kinds of things because you know, I just said that like Chris Sharma popularized deep water soloing, and the reality is that it was already a big thing in places like Mallorca where where it's easily accessible and it makes total sense. And there were already like local legends doing that kind of thing. So it's like, you don't want to give full credit to one random person like Chris Sharma for making it cool. But that is kind of true in the US. I feel like with each episode, we could do an extra two hours of like extra context behind it, you know, explaining like, well, you know, this is largely true. But there was that one example of that French guy who did it first. Yeah. But you know, he's just not remembered in the same way. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's actually fascinating. because like, that's actually always true of history is that ideas often totally. are grouped and they're often like the same ideas had in different places, like globally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there anyone that you wished like of the older generation that you like wish you could have gotten climbing with? I would love to go climb with John Gill, I think. Just because I think that beyond his incredible physical talent and the things that he, he did as a boulder, I think that he had a really different approach to it. I mean, and that's something that I didn't really appreciate until we got to talk to him was just how differently he viewed climbing and and i think a lot of that comes from the gymnastic background but just the way he thinks about movement and the way he thinks about you know executing a climb i'm just like i don't know it's so interesting it'd be it'd it'd be fun to you know a session with him at the boulders 
Number three, climbing doesn't happen in a vacuum. Greater cultural and economic factors have played a role in its growth. My other big takeaway from the season was just how some of the trends in climbing were really just following broader cultural trends or, or really how broader cultural trends affect, you know, things in climbing. Explain that to me. Well, it's like, you know, growing up in a climbing gym, I just thought of it as, as you know, a gym opened. But what does that have to say with, you know, the suburbanization of America and, and you know, real estate trends and commercial real estate and, and even just plastic manufacturing, like all the climbing holds that, that I've spent my whole life climbing on. I mean, a lot of that has to do with plastics and, and how they're, they're sold and marketed. It's like, you know, or, or even talking about root setting. It's like there's just a lot more to climbing than we necessarily think of. Or the public lands issues. I mean, you know, I've as a climber, I've always taking the wilderness somewhat for granted without realizing that that you know teams of people like whole organizations are devoted to keeping those lands open you know it's like there's so much of climbing that we just take for granted for a long time people found climbing mm-hmm. right you know it was like you you read a book like i think of joanne reading um i can't remember off the top of my head, but I remember Joanne reading the book as a 17-year-old in New York City, barely having ever been outdoors, and just deciding, well, I'm actually going to go spend my life like putting up first ascents and doing rad things, even though she'd never climbed. And people found climbing in that way and did that. And, and even like, even when we started climbing in the gyms, right, you had to go to some strange industrial part. Like the two gyms in Seattle were uh, down by like the docks and then like down in like the industrial district where you just would never bump into them unless you knew they were there. And, like, and just, even knowing that they're there, they were scary to go to. <laughs> like slightly, right? And then it... Well, I mean, that's, got, that's how the gyms in SAC were. It's like even knowing the address, you're like, am I in the right parking lot? Like this feels pretty intimidating. Like, <laughs> is it okay to be here? Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you think about it, it's like, and then all of a sudden like those gyms were successful and they like, were like, oh, or someone spun one off and like, well, we could put it out where all the families are and there's like, you know, less of a drive and like they end up in the suburbs and then all of a sudden it's like climbing is kind of cool so we can actually bring this back to urban settings where like all of a sudden you know you're dealing with issues of gentrification and all that and it's just like fascinating to see how climbing it's just sort of so easy to see it as monolithic but really it's tied up into the greater things that are happening in our country and and really in our in our world right now number four Gyms are the new campfire. I mean, in some ways, the climbing gym is becoming sort of the modern third space, you know, whatever the term is for the place that isn't at home, isn't at work, like where you go to hang out with your friends. You know, like in the UK, that'd be going to the pub to, to hang with your mates, you know, but I think in, in modern life, that's often the climbing gym, you know, a place that, that you can see all your friends where you're not at work or at home. I definitely see the climbing gym as the modern campfire. I hope people embrace gym climbing and all that brings out in it. Like, I hope that people build culture around that versus just like it being a workout, you know, because I mm-hmm. think that that's one of the sides about the last, you know, 60 years in climbing was that it, it wasn't just like this adventure. It wasn't just this sport. There was like actually a culture to it and there was like a way to connect and there was a way to build community. And I hope, I hope that some of the older people that maybe like 
have been there for that can like I don't know help out and maybe maybe the the young people don't need old people at all but like that's like one of those things I do I do hope that people are able to like find that community that you and I found growing up in climbing in this next version of it I mean do you know anybody who refuses to go to a climbing gym no but I think I have like friends that'll be like yeah, you always have some like, friend who's like curmudgeonly about it and like yeah, likes or like, to complain or like, about we'll it. like lose interest or just being like, oh, the gym doesn't scratch that itch or whatever, which I get. I mean, but also like even the curmudgeons, you still see them in the gym. They're just complaining about it, you know, <laughs> which you're like, yeah, that, I mean, that's fine. They're, you know, it's fair to com- complain a little bit, but you're here because it's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. Like looking around culturally, you know, would you say that climbing has hit the mainstream already or is it just about to like what's your read on that because like that's a pretty subtle like that sort of tipping point for climbing is a somewhat subtle thing and would you say it's hit it or not i think climbing is very close to hitting mainstream and maybe when it's in the olympics that'll just kind of count as the moment where you're like okay now it's mainstream but i mean it's grown so much but yeah it might it may not feel exactly mainstream yet because i mean it's it's not it's not like little league you know it's not like every kid is signing up and and people are doing it everywhere and there's still huge swaths of the country that that just don't have climbing gyms full stop so i mean i I don't think you could quite call it mainstream yet even though i think a lot of older climbers like to complain that it's going mainstream or that it's you know that it's basically there but but realistically i don't think it's actually mainstream yet After the break, we finish up our takeaways and discover one of Alex's pet peeves. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. (laughs) I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Number five, don't be nostalgic. Modern climbers have the best of both worlds. Obviously in the foreseeable future, I think everyone is anticipating you know, the the quote-unquote Olympic bump. But if you look at it and you say to yourself, like, is this going to keep growing or is this going to keep rising? Like, what do you think about that? I think climbing is definitely here to stay. 
I think it might not continue to experience the same kind of growth forever, just because at some point it'll it'll plateau. But climbing is such an elemental movement pattern. I mean, it's 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 pleasing to do. It's uh you know it feels good in the same way that that running is here to stay. I mean, people will always go running because you know to some degree your body is 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 made to do that kind of thing. And climbing is is the same way. I mean, it's the facilities are nicer, the community is nice. It's like yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine climbing contracting. And it's crazy to think, like, from a running standpoint, it sort of seems like, hey, everyone runs. And particularly, like, during the pandemic, there's a huge growth in running. But it's also kind of wild to think that if you go back to the 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 70s, like, running was fringe then, too. That's not that far off from stories of original climbing gyms. You know, people gluing climbing holds onto the bottom of underpasses and, like, climbing in these really fringe places. You know, climbing on, on abutments to, to, you know, bridges and things. It's like... Yeah, I mean, it used to be really not cool, <laughs> and then and then eventually uh, people start to understand it, and then and then they realize it's actually quite fun. It's funny too, like because I think there is a side of listening to some of these stories, like particularly Joanne Uriasti and and Red Rock, you know, like hearing her just be like, "This place was empty," and it's it's like hard not to feel slightly nostalgic. And I certainly didn't know Red Rock the way that you know, like that emptiness wasn't there. I I get it. Um, but it makes me, I I guess I have two questions for you is like, what about the good old days strikes you as incredible? Like what, what do you kind of like hearing, looking back at some of these stories? Like, are there parts of it that you wished you'd been a part of? I mean, not really. Like I've never been particularly nostalgic about the good old days or the golden era of climbing in Yosemite or any of those kinds of things, because I I love free climbing. I love having good bolts. I love having ropes that don't occasionally break. You know, I mean, I guess they do occasionally break, but not really. Basically, I, I love modern climbing hardware and and the safety that it brings. And, you know, I mean, I understand how you could be nostalgic for that that emptiness, you know, like of totally untouched ranges and the opportunity that brings to, to put up first ascents and have wild adventures. But the reality is that that opportunity still exists in huge parts of the world. And I mean, you can go have those experiences if you're willing to travel a little bit and, and venture off the beaten path. So, you know, like I, I personally really like modern Red Rock because I like that the roots have chalk on them and that they're buffed out and that they're clean and they have rappel anchors and that, you know, that way I can have a really pleasant climbing experience if I want it, or I can have a tremendous adventure if I want that too, by, by enchaining, you know, different mountains and, you know, questing off route or putting up new routes. It's like... I don't know. I mean, the thing is, in in the good old days, you know, the Uriostes could only have adventures in Red Rock because that was the only thing that was available. But, you know, nowadays you can have a really intense athletic experience or you can have a tremendous adventure depending on which you prefer that day. And I kind of prefer having the option. Everybody glamorizes the, the good old days or like, you know, the adventure of it. But it's like, I mean, do you want to hand drill every single bolt that you clip? Like, do you want to have to hammer pitons all the time? Do you want your rack to weigh 50 pounds all the time and your rope to weigh a million pounds and then and then also to worry that your rope is going to break if you actually fall on it? Or for that matter, do you want to be hanging in slings all the time? Like, I don't know if you've ever climbed anything in slings, like wearing, you know, basically without a, a seated harness, but it's incredibly uncomfortable and it chafes in terrible ways. I mean, everything about the climbing experience is physically more pleasant nowadays. 
And I'm kind of like, you know, I like that. I mean, even things like plastic water bottles, you know, imagine climbing before plastic. You're sort of like, oh, you're taking like a full on like flask up the mountain and things like that. Like it's all so heavy and there are no technical snacks. You know, you're taking like a, like a metal flask with like a salami with you or something. One of the, the big tensions in climbing uh, or particularly the growth of climbing is, is crowding and access and basically old climbers complaining that, you know, their favorite crag is too crowded now, or there are too many people climbing nowadays. And that's actually one of my biggest pet peeves because you're kind of like, well, you are the crowd, like you are part of that crowd. So it's like, if it's bothering you, just don't be there and don't contribute to that problem. You know, there's so much rock in the world. It's like, there's no real point in complaining that climbing's getting too crowded. You can always just go a little bit further from the car if you need to, or climb at a slightly less popular area or, you know, make a new area. You know, it's like, there's plenty of untapped rock all over. Number six, we're athletically mature and culturally adolescent. There's room to grow and that's exciting. Um, you know, so if I had to pick a central theme or single word to sum up season one, I, I'd pick the word growth. Um, and that word, that can obviously mean a lot of different things. And we've talked about it in terms of numbers, whether that's the number of participants or the grades. But we, we've also talked about growth on a deeper level. Uh, there was one clip from Aaron Mike in chapter nine um, about Navajo lands. Um, here, I'll play it right now. And it really stood out to me. So in any industry or any sport, uh, there's always, you know, kind of a, an evolution timeline, right? And obviously in climbing, we had the technical evolution side, meaning, you know, gear is at a point right now where it's efficient, it's available, it's simple. We have practices in place. On the technical side, climbing is it's, it's not at a maturity level. It's almost there. The other side that doesn't necessarily increase with it, but is uh, an area where, you know, evolution is necessary is the social side of climbing, the, the communal side of climbing. And what I mean by that is the social responsibility that comes with it, the ethics, which we all decide as a community, what's appropriate and what's not. The moment I heard him say that, I kind of was like, maybe he's right. Maybe we have like, a lot to grow. And I was curious what you thought of that. Hopefully the cultural changes in climbing keep a pace with the technical changes and the, and the physical changes. You know, I mean, it'd be interesting if, if the way we talk and think about climbing changed as quickly as the way we're actually able to climb, you know, because like difficulty standards have increased so quickly. And yet the stories that we tell ourselves as climbers seem like they're changing more slowly. Yeah. It's almost like we need new stories. I kind of think... It really just has to do with the acceptance that climbing is growing up and you're just not allowed to do whatever you want anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's the nature of growing up is that you just have to be responsible about things. You know, it reminds me that one thing I've been meaning to do is is to join Memphis Rocks, even though I don't <laughs> live in Memphis or to become a staining member. You can, like, um, I'm, a, I'm a reoccurring donor. I mean, you should just sign up as a donor. And just do it that way? Yeah, like, yeah, don't be a member. Just Just become a donor. Uh, okay, cool. Like that, I'm I'm not a multitasker, but I, that is on my list, and that will happen because because that's like just something I'm just like that is just such a good idea. Like I just was like, this is a good. No, idea. no, I know totally. And totally. and it's like I I don't know. You know, I'm sure someone out there is gonna pick apart that idea, or like say everything, but I'm just like 
fuck it. That's truly a good idea. Like, I'm just going to go, like, out there and just be like, I, I don't know what the, like, like I mean, maybe there is some drawback to, to that approach or, or to, to that model or whatever that we'll, we'll find out in the future. But I'm like, at least let's try new ideas to continue to, to like, build this community in a way. Because I think you said in that episode, but I, I, I am concerned sometimes that this could turn into the country club. I look at it and I see the sport and I see it, I see it growing rapidly. And I think that like, you know, a lot of times like businesses, when they're doing something, the the way that they do it is they just raise prices. And I can kind of see this version of the story where uh, that it feels more like tennis or golf than this sports for everyone. And I don't know, like, I I guess I like worry about that. And I'm curious whether you do or, or not. Well, I definitely don't see that. I mean, I think that climbing gyms, you know, already what we've seen with the growth of gyms is just that more people participate in climbing across the board. And we've definitely seen that with, with gender, uh, you know, because 30 years ago, climbing was mostly men and now it's very evenly split. I mean, especially indoors. And you definitely see that across, across all kinds of groups of people, because as gyms enter, you know, different parts of the country and different parts of cities, you just wind up with, with a wider swath of, of people trying out the sport. And so, I mean, I think when you look at a cross-section of climbers in America today, it's wildly different than it was, you know, I was going to say 30 or 40 years ago, but it's wildly different than it was 10 years ago even. And so, I mean, there's definitely no evidence that climbing is becoming more like a country club. I mean, if anything, climbing is becoming more like a like a music festival or something, you know, it's becoming more, more inclusive. It feels like we're just like, everybody shows up. I mean, gyms are just opening everywhere. And so you just wind up with, with all kinds of folks getting to try it out. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about climbing in relation to a global mega sport like soccer, you know, or football in the rest of the world, a sport that's so popular and so easy to try that it's attracted talent from literally anywhere. So the people playing professional football, like professional soccer, are the best in the world for sure, because almost anybody everywhere on earth has kicked a ball around and had some opportunity to develop their skill. So when you see people performing at an elite level, you know that they really represent the best humans on earth at that particular skill. And climbing is not even remotely close to that point yet, you know, because most people have never even tried climbing. And so I'm kind of excited for, for more people to try it just because we'll wind up seeing so much more ability, you know, we'll just see incredible things happen in climbing. After the break, we look forward and talk season two of Climbing Gold. Yeah, there's gonna be a season two. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, 
I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. We've gotten through this first season. You know, obviously we have not done the definitive history of climbing by any means. We've never pretended to do that. But, you know, in this first season, I think we definitely focused on, you know, the past up really to the present. And I think that in this next part that we're going to do um, that'll that'll release in, you know, a little bit from now is we want to look at the future. And and I think that I think what we hope to get everyone to is this this point of understanding because there's clearly a big thing about to happen to our sport. And like, it may not matter to some people, but it's going to, the Olympics are going to matter to a lot of people in the world because that's just what the Olympics are. And so I just, from your standpoint, like, what are you curious? Like, we're going to dive into this. We're going to dive into competition. We're going to dive into um, some of the things that surround this next chapter um, in climbing, which, you know, in theory could really take place on walls created from people's imaginations versus found in nature. Um, what are you thinking about it? I think it's totally natural that the Olympics are at the center of our attention right now and that competition climbing is is so interesting for the sport. And I think for at least the next, you know, five, 10 years, it seems like competition climbing is going to be sort of the, the, the leading edge of the sport just because it's going to be attracting new people, attracting new sponsors and new advertisers, all this kind of stuff. It's like, it, it probably is going to be sort of the growth driver for, for climbing for the foreseeable, you know, for the next decade. And yet, even as that happens, you know, it's like already I can kind of see a time slightly past that when you have people who maybe didn't quite qualify for the Olympics or just like aren't quite interested in competition, but who still train in the same ways, have access to the same facilities and climb at the same level, who are out doing you know, what they want, which is perhaps the adventurous side of climbing, you know, putting up crazy new routes and at an incredibly high standard in, in various parts of the world. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, it makes sense that the Olympics are going to be sort of driving the sport for the next little bit. But I really think that that will swing back the other way and just enable the next round of adventure, basically. Uh, and, and personally, that's what I'm more interested in. I'm kind of curious what what today's Olympians will do in five or 10 years when they don't qualify for the next Olympics, but they're still some of the best climbers in the world. And they're like, you know what? I'm sick of training in the gym. I want to do something really exciting. Really, the U.S. hasn't had a team until just recently. And definitely not a well-supported team. Yeah. And and that's changing. And there are some countries that have that. There are some countries that don't. Um, it's kind of all over the board. But I think that what you, you know what we're looking at is that it's not just the story about these athletes. It's a story about the infrastructure that comes behind them and some of how that changes it. And I think that we're going to be, you know, some of the people I'm really excited to talk to are the people that route set, that create that. They're almost like the unseen competitors in the whole thing. Um, I think there's the side of the gyms that's pretty interesting, some of the business side of it. I think there's the level that goes into actually creating a team around a sport that, typically 
you know, in its last you know few decades has been definitely driven by individuals. And it's interesting because like we used to have teams, you know, when people would go to the Himalaya to like do the, some first ascent of an 8,000 meter peak, they went as teams, right? And that's very much faded away from our sport. And there's just so many interesting questions that I think this brings up. Um, and and frankly, like, I don't know about you, but I, I find the Olympics as a whole an interesting institution. Like interesting in a good way? Uh, like interesting in that they're like such a powerful platform. You know, they are such a powerful platform and there's incredible moments. Like I, there's just undeniably as like a, as a fan of sports and someone who loves like athletic competition and the nuance of it, it's like undeniable. There's something about the Olympics that just, yeah. I mean, it is, brings out the best in human performance. It, it, yeah, it really it's, it's does. Amazing. And that's something that's like worthy. And then there's all these other sides to it which are like way trickier. And that's like the story of humanity realistically, but I yeah, think the commercialization, the exploitation, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, does it corrupt the sport? Yeah. Alex, I'm curious, like how many times, uh, you've been asked whether or not you're going to, or like back in the, like earlier when the qualifications, like whether you were going to be in the Olympics or not. No, any, anytime I do some kind of corporate speaking or like public event, people are like, oh, so you're going to be in the Olympics, right? I'm like, no, I'm old, I'm weak, I'm slow compared to the Olympians. It's like, come on. We just came back from doing a bunch of reporting for season two. And we were in Salt Lake, we were a team with Team USA. And I have my questions about the Olympics. And I have like my questions of, of whether or not climbing needs the Olympics or whether the Olympics need climbing and it's probably both but we're going to get into that but I guess like there was a level of it where I'm really interested to see what happens and and this next season we're going to dive in and I'm curious like are you excited like the Olympics are coming up it's about to happen like after this last trip like are you fired up to to go dive into season two yeah for sure I mean I'm fired up for the Olympics I don't know why you're such a well no I know why you're a curmudgeon because you're older but no the Olympics is a showcasing climbing athleticism at its finest i mean what's not to be excited about seeing the best climbers in the world compete on the biggest stage and and showcasing their talent basically no i'm I'm super psyched for that i mean in the same way that it's fun to watch world cups except in this case it's just even you know it's just a whole different degree and i mean it's never been done before i mean it'll be just fun to see the spectacle of it isn't the goal of the olympics to bring the world together through sport i mean it's just cool to see so many so many countries together, you know, showcasing the the finest in human talent. I mean, I kind of love seeing any human do something really well, you know, and that could be like chopping vegetables really, really quickly or, or, you know, precisely, you know, it's like, I just like seeing excellence. And I mean, really, when you watch the Olympics, all you're seeing is excellence. The field that's about to arrive there in terms of like strength, like obviously there's a lot of different skills in climbing, but in terms of strength, like the field that's about to arrive there, like, where does it stand against, like, a lot of the climbers we've talked about on the first season? Like, Tommy Caldwell, Chris Sharma, you know, you, like, all, like all of that. Like, like in terms of the people that we often gravitate towards and think of, like, oh, that person is, like, at the forefront. Like, where are these people at athletically right now? The entire field of competitors appearing in the Olympics is, they're all far beyond any of the folks that we've chatted with throughout season one. I mean... You know, you talk about Lynn Hill being the first woman to climb 514. You know, that was groundbreaking at the time. And yet the the qualifying routes now for the Olympics are at least 14A. So, I mean, the the women in the Olympics, 
you know, are expecting to onsite 14A. You know, it's like a completely different standard than than Lynn was climbing in her time. And, you know, I mean, and same with the men. It's like the, the qualification routes, you know, when, when we talked to Chris Sharma, we talked about him putting up Necessary Evil, the first 14C in the country. I mean, 14C is a common grade in competition now for lead World Cups. You know, people should be onsite in that grade in order to make semifinals or to make finals. And so... You know, I mean, the standards have just completely changed over the last 20 years. Actually, another way to look at it is that 20 years ago, any strong climber could have a pretty good shot in a competition. And that's kind of how somebody like Chris Sharma won a World Cup in his time, because he was one of the strongest climbers in the world. And so he could just kind of show up and, and win comps. And that's just not the case anymore. Because now, you know, you can be a really strong climber, but if you're not practicing competition climbing all the time, you're just not even going to be able to to read the movement. Like the the problems are too tricky. The setting is is counterintuitive. There's a whole dynamic element to it that that rivals parkour. You know where you have to like run and jump and balance and catch things. You know, I mean, just being a strong climber is is not enough anymore. You have to be one of the strongest climbers in the world and incredibly skilled at this particular style of competing. Do you get the sense we're looking at the future? Well, I think we're definitely looking at the future of competition climbing. I mean, we'll see how that applies to climbing in general. Yeah, that's like the million dollar question right there. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, that's kind of what we've been exploring and what we'll continue to explore through season two is, you know, like as as the athletic side of climbing charges into the future, what does that mean for the adventure side? <laughs> you know, like what what does that mean for the rest of climbing? Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. The show has been written and edited by me, Fitzka Hall. I could not have done that without our senior producer, Elizabeth Nakano, who provided additional editing and guidance. Along the way, we got extra help editing and writing from Alex Park and Andrew Burton, additional editing and mixing by Cordelia Zars, who also collaborated with me to compose music for the show. Brennan O'Connell and Amy Stolzenbox provided music. Art direction and social media by Anya Miller. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RXR Sports and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape Thin Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>